Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and Double Exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 105, Cultural Mechanics Roundtable. Recorded at Metatopia 2015. Presented by Jason Pith, Mark D.S. Truman, and Julia Ellington. Okay, welcome. Uh, my name is Mark Dias Truman, and this is... Uh, Jason Petrie of Genesis of Legend Publishing. Welcome. Um, we're here today to talk about cultural mechanics, and this is kind of a roundtable thing, so we're interested in hearing from you. I see some <coughs> folks in the audience who have done some cultural mechanics work, and it'll be great to hear their perspectives as well. Uh, but our goal is to take the next hour or so to chat about um, what our experience has been designing games that engage you know, non-traditional... I don't know, traditional is the wrong word. Non-dominant cultures to some degree, or engage dominant cultures with an eye towards critique and exploration of what values and issues those cultures have. So sort of, uh, if we think about Dungeons and Dragons as like one of the foundational texts of our hobby, it, it has cultural values in it, but they're totally submerged. They're like, you know, they're, they're not apparent, you know, open, honest discussion. It's sort of like, yeah, colonialism, that's where we're going to kick down the doors and take monster stuff. And we're not going to question that. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're here to do is to like pull the sort of curtain back on some of the work we've done to try to explore that and, uh, and also hear from you all about what are your questions, comments, thoughts about this work if you're doing <coughs> it or the work that's impacted you if you're a player and you want to share some of that as well. Um, so one of the things we usually do at this kind of panel is just go around and get everybody's name and why you came today. So not, not anything like super deep, just sort of like what brought you to today's roundtable, um, and uh, and that'll be a good place to start. So is that cool with you? Yeah, yeah, Great. perfect. So let's start over here. All right. Um, my name is Jacob Lepton, and I am here specifically because I'm investigating uh, impact gaming in peace building and conflict situations. Cool. So deploying them for participatory work in the field with people who are in conflict zones and having them build games. Awesome. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you. Good work. Uh, I'm Sam. I'm both interested sort of, uh, from my own personal play perspective to be able to explore more different avenues without feeling like I'm uh, uh, doing appropriation and also uh, helping against sort of similarly as students more in a higher ed context explore some of these spaces that may be unfamiliar to them okay. without also falling into caricature or extremely shallow stuff. Cool. Yeah. I'm Kate and I um, am uh, Hi. We're good. Hi. People are just introducing themselves. So. Oh, good. I'm a historian. Cool. Um, and I teach uh, in the higher ed sector, and um, I have a game that I am uh, that I've designed to kind of um, deal with the issue of giant intro level gen ed history classes and how to make them interesting. Cool. Um, and it deals with a lot of cultural. Issues, obviously, and so good ideas. Awesome, welcome. I am Henry. I am here because I'm actually studying to become a historian and interested in the use of things like this to get people in the mindset or teach people about like historical cultures that might be completely removed from modern day mindset. Cool, awesome. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure. I'm Ben. I. Uh, I develop games for doctors and patients, um, for nonprofits and stuff. Um, but I also I'm here because I, on the side, I develop role playing games and tabletop games. And one of the settings that I've been working with is kind of it's intentionally subversive and focusing a lot on geopolitical like conflict. Okay. And we kind of like we like to play with world mythology and I like <coughs> to do it respectfully. Um, even though I, I do want to sort of, I, I know that a lot of my, a lot of people who are playing my games are probably like from very like white middle class backgrounds. I'd like to introduce them to like sort of a variety of perspectives, <coughs> and I'm afraid I, I don't want to fall into like caricatures. And at the same time, I, when I'm examining world like mythology and stuff, a lot of them are 
very much reactionary <coughs> to each other. And so it's like, how do I show respect while at the same time kind of acknowledging that they're all sort of in conversation? Yeah. Great. I'm Craig, and I'm here because I'm interested in setting up LARPs and to actually promote uh, individual and group development and personal growth. Awesome. I'm Jay. Um, I make LARPs. I am uh, non-neurotypical, so I've been obsessed with culture for a long time because as somebody who like processes the world cognitively di differently, like I'm super sensitive to the ways that how we socialize and our assumptions about reality are very constructed. Um, so I kind of have this like mission of trying to make our cultures more user friendly to neurodiverse peoples. Um, so I'm just like super interested in designing, and I'm like really not a mechanics person. So like, you know, it's just, oh, like, uh, I'm Mendez. Uh, I've been writing games for about a, a year now, and I've been. I've been studying culture in the context of, uh, I did uh, religion and dance and literature and uh, classics in college and then grad school. Um, and I, I feel like I'm always writing cultural mechanics regardless of what my writing assignments have been. So it seems kind of relevant. Cool. Uh, so again, I'm Mark. Um, I've written a couple of games that I would think of as sort of culturally neutral, uh, although that was a big learning on my part, like why do as a Mexican-American game developer did I not try to put my code in there, have some grappling with it. Um, but recently I've been working on two games, Urban Shadows, which is a game about uh, cities and, and like cultures within cities, and Cartel, which is a game about Mexican drug cartels that both uh, really challenged me as a developer to do this work and do it well. Um, and it's a, it's a long process. So Those have both been on my radar for similar... Uh, awesome. So I'm here both to talk about my experiences doing that and also to learn from you all about what, what kind of questions you have and some of the things you're grappling with and some of the progress you've made. Uh, Jason. Uh, I'm Jason, once again. Uh, and I've been... I don't think I've got any actually culturally neutral games. So my flagship game, Spark, defines every setting by three beliefs. And these are all sort of cultural, commonly held cultural understandings within this setting and how this pushes into characters. So that's baked in pretty hard. Games about transhumanism and how the world changes people's uh, beliefs and forces them to, uh, to sacrifice things. And say The City Between, which is a game of um, waves of immigration into a multidimensional city. So it's a bunch of uh, culture is very top of mind in part because my Canadian background gives me a slightly diff like 5% different perspective which has a major inferiority complex so I pay a lot of attention to culture my name is Julia um, I write role playing games and LARPs um, I wrote my first game was a game about slavery in the antebellum south um and called Steal Away Jordan. It's called Steal Away Jordan, and you should play. Um, and uh, it it was my first game. Um, I I like to see in games people who look like me, or people who look like people that I know. And um, I uh, I. Honestly, it wasn't until I saw I was on this panel that I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I did have some culturally relevant mechanics in, in my game. Um, uh, and and I, I like that. And um, I, also, I have a bachelor's degree in religion, um, and so that's something that I find creeps into my games here and there. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to hear what people are also working on and curious about and... Um, I think I have as many questions um, as I could possibly have answered. Cool. So I think what we'll do to get started, just to give us kind of framework, is to give each each of us a time to maybe describe one challenge we faced doing this work, um, mm -hmm. and then we'll turn it over to you for questions. So we'll spend at least half our time here together talking and answering questions, but I want us to give a baseline of like what some experiences have been developing these kinds of mechanics. So Julie, if you're cool starting, you can go down the row, is that okay? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about, like, what was a challenge you faced and, and what, what did you do to kind of gr grapple with it, if not overcome it? Because I know sometimes we don't overcome it all at once. Um, well, there, I, I think I, I can do two. So 
Um, the first game I wrote, I, I, I hadn't actually been playing role-playing games for a very long time. Um, and But I liked to write, and the subject matter was something that was interesting to me. So I didn't have a lot of experience, but I also didn't have a lot of baggage as far as mechanics go. And so when I was looking at how do I say this thing with um, that I want to say in a game way... Um, I think I, I went to my my creative writing place and basically gamified or mechanicized, mechanic, mechanized um, uh, uh, the things I wanted to say. So, for example, in Steal the Way, Jordan, the GM chooses your name um, because you're all slaves. And um, you roll a huge number of dice or a not very large number of dice based on your worth as um, not just a slave but as a as a person in the society so if you the GM, because it's always the GM who would ever play um, a white male landowner you have the largest dice pool especially if you're healthy and you're reasonably young and you're pretty stable um, the factors that you uh, that 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 will give you extra dice or take away dice would be your health. Um, if you're a woman, whether you've born children, um, for both men and women, your uh, whether you are um, highly skilled or not. So if you are, um, if you work in the fields and you are not particularly skilled, you're not going to have a high dice pool. So, uh, say an old man who is too old to work, you might have like six dice, whereas you could have fifteen to possibly up to 23 dice if you're um, a, a white slave owner. Um, one thing that I found uh, that was that was a challenge that solved itself through math um, was that I didn't want it to be, when you're rolling these dice, I didn't want it to be that, that, that the players were always going to lose because that's actually not, that's not the message I wanted to give. Um, Thanks to probability and the way I'd sort of set things up, um, the more dice you have, the more chances you have to fail, um, which I think is an interesting commentary on um, the institution of slavery. Uh, so if you only have eight dice, you have more. You don't have as many chances to fail. Um, so that that actually worked itself out. Uh, things that I, I in in that first. In, in Steal Away Jordan, there are things that, when I go back to it, um, which I would like to do eventually, um, I would like to take out because they're too fiddly. But I really loved them because I think they also reflected the culture. So there's a whole yeah. um, card system. So you play with dice and cards. And now that I have more experience as a game designer and as a player as well, I see that that, that actually might be too much. It's a burden. Yeah. It is a bit of a burden, but it's fun. And I've played many games where we never even opened up the cards, but, yeah. but you can take that to a, a narrative thing. But I really liked the card mechanic. It was incredibly com complicated, but it was really fun. What constituted failure if you had all the dice and you rolled badly? Oh, okay. So, so here, I guess this is another cultural point because... Um, I was using African American folklore and and numbers, and so <laughs> you roll dice, you pick out the pairs that would add up to seven, threes and fours, twos and fives, but since but not ones and sixes because ones count against you because one a pip is, one pip is bad, so you roll dice and you're taking these pairs and each pair equals one, but uh, a, die, a die that is one equals minus one. So, say you roll... I'm not going to spew off numbers because it's not going to make any sense. Basically, you could have um, a slave who had, say, 12 dice have four pairs, and that's four successes, and some that don't count at all because they don't pair up, and maybe one loss. You could have a slave owner who rolls 15 dice or 20 dice, and... For every pair, they have a one, which cancels it out. And I've seen this happen where um, the slave owner, because they had many successes, had a number of fails as well, and ended up with zero points, whereas the, uh, the slave had one point at the end of it. And they still prevail, because it's just whoever has the most, but it's you have to have 
two to have a success and, and one out of a six chance on on one die to have a failure. So a, as a player of this game, because I, I played it, was it two years ago or last year when Julia ran it, there's two things that happen to you. Um, first, she the GM gives you the name, yeah. which was like, like, hold on, wait, what just happened? Like, I you, you feel that powerlessness. <clears throat> and then she tells you, well, the slave owner has 27 dice and you have eight. And you're like, well, why am I even rolling, right? And then later you realize, wait a second, all of these power dynamics are just made up. They don't, <laughs> the, the dice don't mean the same thing that I think they mean. And both of those moments were, for me as a game designer, like really revelatory because you built in something real about the world into the dice. And mm-hmm. it's probably, like, I mean, just I'm, I'm just blown away by it because well, it, really, it was really amazing for me. You've got the dice. If you really need someone to help you, you can call on an ally. And... Um, those conflicts and confrontations with um, with authority may not necessarily mean much to you. You could die. Okay, yeah. So you could die. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really like your community that's that's important and that supports you. And um, be, there's also uh, a dynamic where the GM has to leave the room while everybody conspires and discusses what they want. Um, and then the GM comes back and throws things at you. And sometimes... They have nothing to do with what you've all conspired to get. And that doesn't always mean that you're going to conspire to have a rebellion or to kill people or to run away. And in fact, those things, sure, they could happen. But it might be that you really want to have a relationship with this other person uh, on another plantation. And so you're trying for these simple things, whereas the GM might be throwing the big things and you're just like I just want a piece of pie <laughs> you know <laughs> I just want a, I want a full meal tonight and so you get all these things and as you get these small goals you build up to the larger ones whereas the GM just goes yes and so I'm going to sell you and then people might band together or it might be well okay um, so I move on what was the victory condition hmm? how did you win you didn't there, it's not so much about winning um, you you are trying to achieve things, and those things were typically safety, uh, companionship, love, um, safety again, not dying, um, and um, building your community. So that's it, it. Wasn't really about like trying to stage a rebellion. It's an RPG. Yeah. Right. It was, and, and and it was that I was looking at hero stories, and to me, a, a slave narrative is really just a, a, a flavor of a hero story. So you've got the story about someone who um, might be trying to escape, or might actually just be trying to get this one thing that's going to make their life better for a long time: a pair of shoes, uh, a better job, uh, ten minutes with a loved one. And I, my question really to players and to, to, to I guess, the world is how is that really different from um, questing for the magic ring? Like, what's it going to do for you? If you need that to save your family, then awesome. If you need a peach so that you don't starve, awesome. Okay, so uh, I wanted to highlight my current project, SIG, uh, The City Between, which is a uh, multiplanar city which may or may not be related to Planescape. But the key thing that this entire game rotated around were issues of community, of faith, and of family. And I found that these are important elements that are often overlooked in games. So, the way I did this in terms of mechanics was that each character uh, chose the uh, ethnic and cultural origins of their parents. They chose uh, which uh, organization, faction, guild, etc. they are employed in, and which faith or lack thereof they choose to follow. And these are not only core elements of the characters but the NPCs that bind the group together are all built out of these elements. So, and my father was a giant. Then, and um, the other player over there is from the Herald's Guild. 
then we might have the cousin who runs messages for the heralds, who's a half-giant on my father's side. So we've got bonds of family and shared cultural heritage, shared economic background and professional backgrounds. We've got, and we do the same thing with issues of faith, etc. So effectively all the people and therefore all the interfaces into the setting are built out of these threads of culture in all these various ways. And just to disrupt things even more, the cultural influences into the city, including things up to and including language, shift on you. And you'll find um, almost a Babylon effect. And one of the dominant languages becomes marginalized and replaced by another um, new, colon- uh, effectively um, invading colonial language. And people are forced into smaller communities if they want to maintain their original language or otherwise they have to change what language they speak to one of the dominant ones so it's the combination of language pulling communities apart and ties of culture trying to keep things together and the 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 mixed tension was the thing that really compelled me um, in this particular design um, so I started working on Urban Shadows, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse urban fantasy game um, with Andrew Medeiros in like 2013. Like it was, it's been a while, 2012, I think maybe. And at first I was just kind of advising Andrew. He was like, I had this cool idea. And I was like, oh, I love urban fantasy. I played all this White Wolf when I was in college. And this is totally my jam. I ran this werewolf game for forever. Um, and so we started working on it. I told him, we'll, we'll publish it. This will be fun. And then it just kind of got drawn more and more into it. I was starting to like work on the design and do these things and run play tests and it got to a point where um, I realized that this thing that happened when I ran my werewolf game was happening again, which was I set my werewolf game in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but there was this point where I stepped back and said, wow, this is in Albuquerque, my hometown, which is like 50% Hispanic, and all of the characters are white. Right? They're all white, because all the gamers were white people, for the most part. Even, even my friends who are Hispanics were sometimes playing white people. And there we would run these sessions of Urban Shadows and there would just be more white people. All the characters would be white. And sometimes they wouldn't even be intentionally white. It would just be like, we didn't talk about it. And since we didn't talk about it, they would be white. That's the default. Um, and so I was, I was honestly getting really frustrated and didn't know what to do. Um, and then I think I read somewhere Vincent Baker talking about the reason that he and Meg put you know, male, female, ambiguous, transgressing on the character sheet was to make people confront what does your character look like like from minute one. If you want to be a straight white male, you have to pick it. You have to say, cool, I, and that's cool. If you pick it, great. But everybody, everybody has to pick. And so Andrew and I were talking one day, and I was like, what if we, and I just almost said it like, a, of course we're not going to do this. What if we just put race on the character sheet? And we're both like, oh, that, can we do that? Does that, like, will that anger people? Is that even the right thing to do? And so we're like, well, let's test it. And what happened was really interesting. Number one, a lot of people of color that played the game at least seemed to be empowered to say, I'm circling black on this character sheet. I'm playing a black character. And I'm going to say that as I say, I look female, black, with, with you know, angry eyes and an eccentric demeanor. And it's just part of my story. It's not weird. It's not odd. This is just, I'm just telling you what I look like. Right? This is the opening shot. That's what I look like. And white people would then skip it. A lot of white folks would be like, I'm male, I have weird eyes, and I'm like, oh, stop, hold up. Are you white? Oh, yeah, I'm white. I, cho- I chose white. Cool, that's cool. We're, we're just talking about it, right? Um, and so this mechanic became really useful for me to have a conversation, even if, even if it wasn't... I, I'm still not convinced it's the right thing to do. I think it's an interesting thing to do. Um, to push players to say something about it, to make it not just like a default, but to like answer the question... What do you look like? And what's also cool about that is just like male, female, transgressing, it doesn't say what you are. It just says what you look like. I've had people, especially people of color, say, I'm, I look white, but I'm actually Latino. I mean, that's my, if I had described me, Mark, it would be like, I look like a white person, but I'm, I'm actually Latino. And that tension, too, what do you look like? Mikri means that we have, like, Afro-Caribbean vampires, right? We have, um, you know... Asian immortals who are like, oh no, I was there like when the first dynasty was founded and like, you know, I moved to San Francisco because I moved here 50 years ago, blah, blah, blah. Like, awesome. 
and giving white people especially permission to play people of color and that's cool and and you don't have to do anything special like Asian people still like to go out to eat and go see movies and be like they're not mutants they're not like like they're just people so just be people you just happen to be an Asian person that kind of being people thing became a part of the game um, and it really challenged me to think about like how am I enabling that rather than just sort of hoping that it happens um, and so something like Julia's game right and when we first sat down to play I was beyond I was terrified I was like we're gonna play this game I'll be a slave first of all I'm gonna say something offensive and that's not gonna be good right and and two like what do I even do and like playing with Julia was amazing because it reminded she was like yeah, these are the, these are my lines. These are my limits. These are the things I want to be in the game and not. And I was like, oh, of course. Like we can set limits together. <coughs> and then too, like, of course I want to play a slave. Like, I'm the good guy. Like, I'm clearly the good guy. These are clearly the bad guys, right? Like, I, you know, if we win, I think we were like in our game, we like, conspired to kill this master who is like our over overseer who's really awful, right? We totally failed, but like that was our plan, right? That's a good plan. Like, this is, yeah, right. Um, and when I come back to Urban Shadows, I'm kind of thinking like, okay. I don't want to just make Buffy or Angel and just leave it at that and say, cool, urban, urban fantasy is fun. I want to create the best, cool, diverse urban fantasy show that's never on TV. We played a game, one of the last games I played in one of the final play tests. All my players created Hispanic characters in L.A., and I said, this is such a cool game. They would never be on TV because <laughs> there are not enough white people in it. But that's cool because it's what our space. Pitch, but what if everyone is white? What if everyone is white? Exactly. And I love that because it's sort of like that's a place we can stake out in role-playing games. It's a little harder than in a novel or in a movie, and we can do it again and again and again and expand that idea of what urban fantasy is so that the next generation of urban fantasy novels that comes out of the people who play this game might be a little bit more diverse. Telemundo is getting a really good budget these days. Yeah, Telemundo, Telemundo could totally do the Hispanic <laughs> werewolf game. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, so that's some of our challenges, and I think that just scratching the surface of the kind of things we're interested in doing, but we'd really love to hear from you and, and have this be a roundtable and think about some of the challenges you're facing, some of the questions you have. So, do folks have some questions that, that they want to tackle and, and tackle as a, as a group? Uh, just, like, really briefly, you're talking about, like, a sort of longer-term vision of being able to put cultural elements in these edge spaces and have them push into popular culture. Reminds me a bit, have you heard of, um, there's some people looking into this in cultural strategy, which is basically the idea that politics and policy follow culture, and so if you're looking for policy changes, you need to be starting with a 15-year cultural plan, and basically saying, like, what are the steps and who can we engage with and get involved in this over time that will build toward the public and the politicians being able to step up and say, like, I feel like I have enough people behind me to make a motion on it. So, it just made an interesting connection for me. Hmm. I don't know if you like look at your games as a long-term process in that way, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, I I mean I I wrote Steel Ray Jordan in two thousand seven, and um, I have noticed that it's gotten a different reception when it first came out <laughs> from now, um, and and that's interesting. And um, I, I honestly didn't intend to. Nobody believes me, but I really didn't intend to provoke people. I honestly thought, well, you know, my mom's a history professor. And writing what I know, isn't that what we were always told in high school is to write what we know? Um, it's been really interesting, though, to see the way that, that the conversation has changed in just game communities, though. That there is... Um, a lot more openness and acceptance and uh, welcoming of diverse vo voices. And um, I didn't really get that at first. Um, and it, 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 looking back, that was, it's really interesting. Um, and, and even saying, well, I was just writing something that I knew about that I thought was interesting. Why don't you guys think that's interesting? <laughs> Um, and, and, and at the same time saying I totally understand this game is not for everybody this is, this is not going some people don't play this way and that's also really good um, that's totally fine but looking at like how 
2006, 2007, 2005, and what the dominant voices were, and what people were interested in playing, and 2015, um, and what those the dominant voices are and the emerging voices are, um, I think are are it, it's it's nice to see. And in 2011, 2012, I think I was even at a point where I just didn't really and ever want to talk about uh, diversity in games. I felt kind of burned, and I felt sort of like, well. You know, everything that, that, that they say in media about, like, gamers is like, they're all white guys. I, I believe. Even though I really didn't. <laughs> um, so um, that, that, that switch somewhere flipped, probably, in, like, I don't know, 2011. Um, and that's nice to see. So, yeah. So in addition to my work as a game designer, I'm also a community organizer. And I think that my, I agree, I think that there's a lot of cool stuff happening with culture, but I also think that it's necessary but insufficient, right? And I think one of the things I see a lot, uh, especially among like well-meaning white communities, is this idea that there are many ways to change that don't involve any sacrifice or hardship or organizing. Um, so I would say, great, yes, we should totally have a cultural plan to broaden and diversify things. And if you look at like the, the gay movement, or gay rights, like you know, will and grace was an important thing. But it was also an important thing to do all the organizing that those movements did across the country and did that hard work in their local communities, right? And so I go home to Albuquerque, and my community of indie gamers there is still largely white. I have not done the work yet of broadening our local community to Hispanic populations that I think would love I mean, love these games, right. are actively playing Pathfinder in some cases. Like they, they're that, The large Hispanic community in Albuquerque plays Pathfinder, but they're not playing our games. And I haven't done the work yet to organize those bridges to be built to bring them over to this community. So I would say necessary but insufficient. The hard work of bringing people to games still needs to be done. In general. In general, across <laughs> the board. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I had a couple things. One question, but first the comment, of course, we had 12 years a slave, yeah. and of course Django Unchained, for whatever value, at least. I mean, you sort of associated with Django and yet aren't good, he won. So there are changes in the culture because of Hollywood too, and there are positive mm -hmm. shifts, I guess, in that respect. Um, I think Django Unchained, when you look at it a couple of times, is obviously written by a white guy. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. though Django has a lot of agency, that it's, to me, it still feels like um, a white man's fantasy. It could also be Jamie Foxx's fantasy, too. <laughs> totally They're cool. not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive, and we are not a monolithic culture, and my conflicted feelings about Django Unchained should never, ever represent how other people of color feel about Django Unchained. Um, but looking at how, comparing that to um, uh, 12 Years a Slave, um, which is uh, <laughs> um, that it, it, it there are, there are aspects of that story that I think you don't find in twelve in a, a Django Unchained. Oh, no, also, the treatment of women um, in Django Unchained, where you've got you do have the slave who who is pretty empowered, whereas no female slave has any power. She is the girlfriend, the whore, and and the put upon person offers nothing but sass. And that's her benefit. And that that's that to me is the sad part. The soundtrack's really good though. Uh, I didn't uh, mean but, yeah. to represent them as identical in Oh no no, no 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 yeah. I just meant that we're at least being sensitized to some of the horrors in a much better way than I think we ever got, say, in my history class. And, mm -hmm. uh, well, that was just the comment. The question was like in the mechanics that you were affecting to say had those languages compete. I'd be interested in hearing more about the actual game mechanics of what you all are up to. So. Sure. So I can talk a little bit about that. So in Cartel, uh, which I, I knew was going to be offensive to some people, so that was <laughs> I, I learned from Julia's example. Uh, don't like, be naive about who you're offending. Like, <laughs> I, I'm actually surprised how little I've gotten. I think people. I think there's probably some people who are like, no, but I'm not going to say anything on the internet about that. Um, uh, one of the things I wanted to represent was trauma, 
and it's really, I mean, one of the challenges of the, Latin, the Latino community faces in particular is there's a lot of historical traumas that are still working themselves out. So, you know, you have sort of violence against the population, and that violence then becomes internalized. Um, so in cartel, one of the main mechanics is that you have stress. And as you engage with the drug trade, from whatever position it is, either because you're in charge, because you're the guy selling on the corner, because you're married to somebody who's affiliated with the cartels, you end up marking stress. And clearing stress is not about going to a spa for the weekend, because that's not an option for you. The options for you are like losing yourself in a substance, uh, verbally abusing or shaming somebody you care about, dishing out a beatdown to someone who's vulnerable. And those things, if they go well for you, relieve your stress at the cost of somebody else. And if they go poorly for you, then everybody is kind of hurt and caught up in it. And so it's a way of sort of trying to mechanize the sort of cycle of abuse that happens within the system in a way that hopefully, hopefully is still fun for some definitions of fun. I'm making big air quotes, like is interesting, engaging as a narrative, which is to say that when you come into your house and you, you know, yell at your 17 year old kid uh, because you're stressed out, that the 17 year old kid will then get into trouble because of that in a way that furthers the story and isn't just like, let's have some sads together, but has that kind of telenovela, breaking bad, the wire kind of feel where like, trauma begets drama, right? And that's kind of the, ch- the thing I was trying to connect. And I don't know how well I did that, but that's, the, that's at least the goal. More questions? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm kind of curious as to uh, where uh, this sometimes spins into fantasy, because that's where I'm... My goal is to sort of create the, the World of Darkness version of The Wire. Okay. Um, and as such, I want people... I, especially a lot of the, it's a lot of the gaming community is very middle class, very educated. They don't necessarily though understand the mentality of what it is to grow up in a very unprivileged situation where a gang really is your best opportunity for both finance and security. Like these these represent your economic and social opportunities. Um, and so, but in my game, most of the players are playing like fantasy creatures, and the idea is that because they've been introduced to this world as creatures from outside this world and they have to remain hidden. They're sort of an immigrant. Uh, the idea of like an illegal, like invisible immigrant kind of metaphor going on. Mm-hmm. And they don't have any rights because they're not technically people. Like from the, the, the perspective, they have to remain hidden. They can only pretend to be human beings. And as a result, their, their opportunities are very limited. They have to stick with certain organizations that aren't, may not be perfectly healthy and, and, and compliant. So I was just sort of wondering... What is it that you recommend as far as being sensitive when you are clearly not dealing with real races, but you're dealing with analogs and metaphors for them? Yeah. So, I am the least brave person presenting here in terms of my game designs, which is why in the aforementioned Fantasy City, I I use uh, fantasy species almost as proxies so I can uh, be talking about ethnic groups and I mean I also allow blurring of uh, cultural identification changing your actual physiology um, so you can grow wings if you associate with the, with the appropriate community so but for the most part it's I, I, I use the metaphor because it gives that little bit of distance so people can be talking about how people are racist against uh, Giants, and all those giants. I mean, they're just working construction, and they're just. I mean, they they're not really educated, but these giants, and you know, these giants are being abused in this way and this way, and yeah, I bring up uh, uh, Titanomancy or not Maki, the the concept from uh, Western philosophy, the idea that like giants and titans, whenever you look in mythology, are always against the gods, and I'm like. That is clearly a colonial metaphor. Yeah. And so, giants are clearly an oppressed group, and the troll word is totally forbidden at the table. Mm. <laughs> I, I'd, actually, I'd actually extend that a little bit. Um, I've found a Titanomachy in pretty much every single mythology I've ever looked at, somewhere. And yeah, in almost all cases, uh, uh, in, uh, in India, it's really obvious, right? Because you have the Asharas and the Devas. Right. right, but then if you go one culture over, right. it's... it's Reversed, it's right? The, and then the asharas, yeah. <laughs> right. That's where I'm like, that's where I feel cultural sensitivity. I'm like, ooh, yeah. If and all then, of these are going to be somewhat true, this is going to create some real messy conflicts. Yeah. 
I don't think it's a bad thing. No, it's not. But I'm trying to figure out how to make this this not uh, insensitive. Um, okay, so to, to steal from one of my favorite video games, Dragon Age, does that so well. The oppression of the elves in the elf ghettos is is really interesting, and the way the Kunari are treated, um, how they are so other, and they've got horns and what, and they've got this weird religion. They do these weird things, and they're like Borg. They they all think alike, and you, if you actually delve deeper into that, you you get to see that actually no, they they they're very much like us, which I think they did much better in Inquisition. Um, and one of the things I think helps with that is that, um, especially in Inquisition, because you can play, you can play um, a canary, or you can play an elf, or you can play what whatever, um, and you can be, you know, a, a wealthy human, um, or or a mage, which has its own discrimination. Um, so there's religious discrimination that's not based on your race or your ethnicity. Um, that that it comes from multiple pers- perspectives, and I think it's harder to convey that in an effective way that that's both interesting and um, and doesn't other the other in in an unfun way by giving people the chance to play multiple perspectives. So one of the things we talk about a lot, and then we'll get to some other questions back here. And Julia and I have talked about this thing for years now. Yeah. The idea that <laughs> just having no others in your game actually erases us. <laughs> we're like, we're like, okay, right. so, yep. so nobody's discriminated against in this world? Oh, then this is not a world for me. Oh, because yeah. because yeah. it's so out of touch with my reality that it, it seems kind of like a white person's fantasy. <laughs> I don't have to feel... Post-racial America. Yeah, I don't even have yeah. to feel guilty here. Awesome, right? Like, yeah. you know, I always whereas, find it funny in D&D when they're like, oh yeah, all races. They're just, whatever. Humans yeah. everywhere. Humans everywhere, right. <laughs> You're right, okay. So, <laughs> but uh, one of the reasons that um, Urban Shadows work to tackle this stuff is because it became intersectional. So you're a black fairy. Cool. Okay, so you've got fairy right. stuff going on, and you've got black person stuff going on, and black culture stuff going on. Or maybe not. Maybe you know nothing about black culture. You're, you're just The way you came through Arcadia means you look black, and so black people are like, so, hey, where did you grow up? Where are you from? You're like, Arcadia? Can I say that? Like, <laughs> yeah, So you have this whole group of people who think you're one of them, but you're not, because you're not from here, right? Um, and that metaphor, as Jason said, like, you lean on that hard, because... Trying to convince people this is what it's like to be in a criminal gang is hard. Saying this is what it's like to be in a werewolf pack is much easier. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I look at stuff like the X-Men, which is mostly white people getting discriminated against for being mutants. And I think, awesome. That is a bridge for people who are nerds to start to understand what racism does to people. Mm -hmm. right? And so I like those metaphors. There there are other people people of color who feel very differently, but I like those metaphorical bridges that help us say, well, imagine if it was like this for you. And I think I love Dragon Age because my elf was like a wood elf who was like pissed at the at the at the oppression of his people. And like every chance I got to make humans pay, I was like, yes, press the button. And then when I went to the ghetto, I was like, how do you all live like this? And I was totally that like that guy who was like who was like, how do you let yourselves be oppressed? And the elves were like, we're not letting. I shut up. We're gonna revolt. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I was embodying all these cultural things, and it was so much fun to do so because it was safe. Because mm-hmm. I didn't have to do that and talk about me as my elf. So. I think the cool. dwarves were discriminating in their own race. Yeah, they mm-hmm. had even, even like oh, yeah. class and stuff. Yeah. Totally mm-hmm. good. They, were some, they were classist. The <laughs> surface people. So, oh, they're I mean, very classist. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that, that, that's, yeah. Okay, well, cool. Let's get some other thoughts. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. Um, so, uh, in, in my name, um, I mean, part of it is that it is, you know, meant for an educational setting. So mm-hmm. it's, it's people that are not necessarily going to be comfortable gaming. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm going to be asking them to play across gender, race, class, ethnicity. Um, and I wondered, I mean, I know that there's certainly ways that you can do, you can make people more comfortable doing that, you know, by basically good GMing, but um, mechanically, So we we run an exercise at Harvard uh, that we jokingly call Zombie World, but is actually uh, an emergency crisis simulation. And we have people come in, and they're like, straight up, we, we, we prefer not to know who these people are before we play, 
because they end up being like people from the NSA or CIA or foreign governments. And we sit them down and we ask them to make a country and then they go through a zombie apocalypse. And it, we, we are focused on group dynamics. So it's not like typical GMing. It's not a game. It's a simulation. Uh, we don't protect players who are sort of yelled down by other players like I would at the table because we want to reflect later on when you were silenced and how you were silenced. So it's, yeah. a, it's a different environment. But what we have found is the less jumps we ask people to make, the better. We don't ask them to create a character. They just play themselves. Mm. We don't ask them to learn the game mechanics. We have a simple role from Apocalypse World. High is good, middle is okay, low is bad. We don't ask them to have big character sheets. They just decide a few things about their country. And the less that we ask them to do gamer stuff, the more on board they are. So I would say just from an educational perspective, and we should talk more after the panel, the less jumps you ask them to make, the better. So if you're saying, hey, I want you to pay people of a different race, class, gender, whoa, that's a big jump right away. I think Julia will have a lot more advice for you about how to like maybe LARP that so you're not... It also simultaneously introducing ten sided dice, right? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just as an example, right? The, the <laughs> few, the, that may that strikes me as maybe a LARPer situation mm-hmm. where you're asking people to do as little as few jumps as possible yeah. to play their characters. Is there a, a PDF for that or anything? No, it's it's very proprietary. Like, I can't. Oh, they, yeah. It's their simulation, but yeah. yeah. But, but I think I yeah. guess part of it, part of what one tries to teach in history is essentially that history is a foreign country, but it is also, you know, related to the present, and to kind of simultaneously keep those two things in mind. And so having those big jumps is important to understand, like, for instance, how, uh, you know, when I teach about slavery, the main hurdle to get over is, but how did people ever like countenance that and you know you have to in order to teach about it you have to kind of think about like here are the arguments that they made and at that time they felt that they were legitimate and you know it's very difficult to do that well I point Um, towards Julia because you're working on a project for this that would be right for the Warbird stuff are you Mm -hmm. you're not part oh you were Mm -hmm. you were part of the poster Right. Yeah. Yes. I was part of the poster. That's yeah. it. <laughs> Sorry. That was my contribution. Yeah. A <laughs> um, couple games that are playing in this space that I think would be ideal to bring up. Uh, one of which is Dream Askew. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is fantastic in a number of ways. One of which is it's extremely um, approachable, mechanically sim- uh, simple, and entirely based on consent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And consent-based mechanics would be much easier for people to get into mm. when they're coming in from the outside because they're opting into everything. Mm. Um, kingdom mm-hmm. as a good way of specifically breaking down. So here's the pros and cons with all of these things. Here's the complicating factors of, oh, what do you mean that the economy of this geographic area is based on this horribly abusive practice? So, yeah, how do we do that? This isn't the argument against that kind of thing. Uh, and of, I'm just going to continue saying doggy dog because doggy oh, yeah. dog. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, Warbirds is the project I, I strongly associate with Julia because I think she's. I'm on the, the poster. You're on the yeah, poster. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's basically a series of larps about uh, women's experiences in World War II, mm-hmm. and it's it's very focused. But it also, I think, one of the reasons I'm not a larper for the most part, but the reason I helped out with the project and was excited about it was. It was so specific, and it seemed so clearly valuable, which was, okay, so what was it like to work at a factory where race and gender issues were at play simultaneously? And LARPs are just great for bigger groups. You have more people involved, fewer GMs. Um, there's a whole bunch of good stuff there that doesn't ask people to make as many jumps. I don't know. Well, I did play in, in one of the LARPs in... Um I want to say the World War II one, but I, uh, oh, why can't I remember the name of it? It's Mose. Mobilize? No. Uh, it's, uh, it's against Mose. the grain. Against the grain. Um, it was actually a very small group of people, and um, so there's there's this one character who is uh, an African American woman who's college educated, who's totally qualified for this promotion, and then there's um, a, a woman from Poland who's a bit older who has been working at this uh, factory, ammunitions factory, for a very long time. And 
Um, and then there's uh, this very nice middle-class white woman who is doing her part for the war. Um, and there are these factions that have stated to the foreman that they are not going to work if this black woman is the boss. And um, so that we have to figure out how to the part of it is who who gets the chair, who gets to stay in the chair. It's a really simple mechanic. If you get up and somebody else sits in your chair, then they have that power. So um, yeah, we when when we played, oh, and then there's the the male foreman who you would think has, like, all this authority. And he really just wants everybody to sit in one room and, and get along. Because it's his job. Please stop making this hard. Right, right. And he doesn't really... Yeah. He, it's not that he's supportive of this woman becoming a supervisor. He just wants people to get back to work. Yeah. And what the object is to convince somebody, basically, to get up out of their chair so that you can sit down if you're not, stand, if you're not sitting yet. And it's so simple. And in the game that I played, um, uh, I sat down and never got out of my chair. It was the older Polish woman who got frustrated and left. And that meant that her faction actually lost that power. Um, so she, so they, they had to leave. And she walked out. She, she chose to walk out. Um, so that, that small, very simple mechanic is who gets to stay in the chair, I think, was really, really powerful. So as an educator, I, I push you towards those kinds of mechanics because they require such small amounts of buy-in, mm-hmm. right? They, they just require you to be able to explain it to people and then, and then grapple with it. And sometimes I think when we talk about this stuff and I detail the stress mechanic that has all these feedings in and then all these ways it goes wrong and then it's this little loop, it sounds very tempting, but mm-hmm. for new folks, man, just the chair mechanic. Yeah, it's and stuff. we played with someone who had never LARPed before. And he really, really brought it. It was, it was great to see. I, I hate to do this, but we are out of time. Uh, oh. So if you have additional questions, uh, some folks may be able to stick around. I have to go run a game, but always happy to connect with you all later. Thank you so much for the discussion. Yes, thank you. And uh, feel free to, to tag us on Google Plus and have more conversations. We're, yeah. we're eager to talk about this, even if we're not always eager to talk about yeah. it.